was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are study values. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode Number 8. We're delighted to welcome you into the Cubbyhole this week. Do make yourself at home. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these Series 2 episodes as much as we've enjoyed recording them. There are plenty of great Bond podcasts out there, so we know our relationship with you is probably not exclusive, but we do like to think we're the dependable money penny to your 007. Remember, we're available to stream and download on all good podcasting apps and websites, and we're always grateful for any reviews, so do give us your valuable thoughts and feedback. In addition, we'd love to keep in contact with our cubbies on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll keep you updated with all the latest RMCH episode news. And as ever, do keep sending your questions into Phil at QBranch, who will select the best ones to feature in a future episode. Our email address, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we spoke to Gareth Owen about his memorable time as personal assistant to Sir Roger Moore. We discussed our 007 best title songs of the series, and Phil shared his ruminations on the origin story of Major Boothroyd. But what do we have in store this week? Let's find out with our usual hosting team. Firstly, he's the Sir Freddie Gray to my Admiral Hargreaves. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm I'm very well, thank you. I don't. I hope you're not insinuating that uh, you go on to be the head of the British Secret Service in our future life, whereas I just become a political hack. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. I actually owe a little apology to a friend of the show, Nicholas Broadstock. I did uh, make a slight joke back when we reviewed Zardoz in the film club that it was all filmed very obviously in County Wicklow. And it turns out that way back in week one, Taffin was also filmed in County Wicklow, and I never even mentioned the fact. Uh, and I sort of made a joke that Taffin looked a bit like the BBC TV series Ballykiss Angel, which it turns out was also filmed in County Wicklow. And so there is a very specific reason for that. So yeah, it turns out all these weeks, the James Bond Film Club has just been the County Wicklow Film Club. Maybe Bond 26 could be set there as well. That might be an exciting Irish adventure. Bring back Brosnan as the villain. Suddenly visions of Father Ted just come sort of streaming back. Well, I don't know if Father Ted was filmed in County Wicklow, um, but certainly it could be a kind of Skyfall-style ending to a Bond film, couldn't it, if the final battle takes place on the villain's island, which is just this abandoned seminary on an island full of crazy misfits. And the battle around it goes a bit hot fuzz-style with these crazy yokels. I'm a slasher, and I must be stopped. You're a what? A slasher of prices. <laughs> Just kidding. And secondly, he's the Jack Wade to my Felix Leiter. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Very well, thanks, Martin. I, I wondered if you'd uh, get the Jack Wade comparison in there, so um, I'm, I'm not really surprised. We don't really like <laughs> Felix Leiter, so in a way I'm giving you a compliment. Um, so moving quickly on to our, um, our usual shout-outs, we've had a lot of interaction on our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages this week. We also had a really great review on our Apple podcast site. So Charles CM in Canada said, if you like Bond, you'll love this podcast. These guys make a great movie franchise even better with their insights and occasional crazy theory. So thanks very much to Charles for that review. 
We also had a really, really big response to certain segments. Obviously, with VJ Amritraj, we looked at Udaipur and the sort of Indian filming locations for Octopussy. We had a slightly amusing response from the Wizard of Ice on Twitter, who mentions that his sister actually stayed at the, um, the Taj Lake Palace on her honeymoon. And his reaction was, I'm not bitter and resentful about it, though, honest. So not not too sure that the, the sort of sibling rivalry has, has gone down too well there. But um, certainly his sister, I imagine, enjoyed the stay at the, um, the Octopussy Hotel. Um, we also had a really great response to um, our villains section. Obviously, we talked about the 007 best villains. A lot of people agreed with us um, with our number one choice. Of course, I won't reveal who it was in case you haven't listened to that episode. Ali mentioned that um, in Doctor No, of course, Professor Dent's execution was quite an iconic one. There were many mentions for um, characters like Xenia on the top. You know, even Jaws got a mention, although technically he doesn't die, but... Yeah, I think there is a fundamental issue there with uh, the ability to chart Jaws in a, a list of best villain deaths in the franchise, being that he doesn't die in the franchise. I mean, that was, I mean, I did think I should still mention that. I mean, we also did get suggestions for people like Franz Sanchez, and there was a lot of um, agreement with Max Zorin being included as well. So, so clearly it resonated quite highly with, um, with the fellow fans on Twitter. Can we confirm with the Octopussy Hotel, as we're now calling it in Udaipur, that uh, if you're a, a woman, you get to sort of row in on the sort of barge, uh, you know, rowed by Octopussy's uh, sort of army. But if you're a guy, the only way you can actually get to it is hidden in a crocodile suit and you have to then paddle your way uh, across the lake to get there. I've not inquired, but I imagine that, uh, that it probably is a little rule that, you know, women have to row in and, and obviously they have to moor up at the entrance. And then obviously if you're a man, you either have to make your own makeshift crocodile or, you know, steal a hot air balloon or however you, however you want to acquire your hot air balloons. I'm, I've never ridden in one. More up. Great choice of phrase there, Phil. That's what our podcast oh. generally likes to do. I was going to say, when you say more up, do you, do you literally mean more the boat up or do you mean you've got to get up on the jetty and do a Roger Moore style witticism in order to sort of pass the hotel reception? And given that it's a, a female only location, he'd just be walking around going, a woman, a woman, a woman, a woman. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond? So let's start the show as we always do with On the Scene, the segment where we take a closer look at some of the more memorable scenes throughout the Bond franchise. And this week we're going to examine the suspenseful pipeline sequence in The World Is Not Enough, or Twine to its friends. But first, if you've forgotten what happens, never fear, the great Alan Partridge is on hand. Over to you, Alan. MI6's token black guy Robinson drops bonds an unlikely nuclear physicist Denise Richards bearing the even more unlikely name Dr. Christmas Jones at a pipeline entry shaft where a Mario Kart's waiting for them. You know how to drive one of these things? Doesn't exactly take a degree in nuclear physics. Yeah, like you've got one of them. Her Majesty Dame Judi Dench and Ice Cube fetishist Electric King watch on from a big board as Bond and Crimbo intercept a 60 mile an hour nuke. He's the best we have. Though I never tell him. I hope you're right. Bronholm keeps yelling faster, like an excited five-year-old, while Crimbo does all the bloody work. You've diffused hundreds of these, right? Yeah, but they're usually standing still. Yeah, like she's ever seen one in her life. Turns out the bomb's not a nuke, so Bond totals it and mounts Crimbo for good measure. Everyone back at the big board thinks she's at it, and Electra gifts Dame Judy her uni booty calls brooch of death. I couldn't let it explode with the rest of him. Then everyone gets shot, and then finally Twig's Electra's a wrong'un. Bond's the best you have, or should I say, hat. 
Then Dame Judy belts her with her ring hand, while Bronholm explains the plot to Crimbo in waffly gibberish. I have to get the plutonium back, or somebody's gonna have my ass. And Bond gives her a look that says, spoiler alert, it's gonna be me. The end. Lovely summary as ever. Thanks a lot, Alan. So this scene, lots of tension ramping up. Particularly, I enjoy the, the David Arnold score in the background. Really gives this one a sense of impetus and uh, momentum, doesn't it? Matching the momentum of the, whatever they are, cylindrical metal things that are going down the, the pipeline. Uh, so yeah, I think I really love this one. And when we reviewed The World Is Not Enough, I said that I also enjoy that kind of uh, the duality of having the action play out with Bond and then someone else watching that action. Uh, obviously, in this scene, we get M and Electra watching the proceedings on the big screen. So it's a lovely tension between the characters in the two locations. Just to check as well, Ryan, is that the new technical term, cylindrical metal things? Well, I don't know what they're called then. Yeah, that is the, that's what I'm going <laughs> to say. I mean, I mean, I refer to them in my notes as sleds because they kind of, they do sled along. But no, I, I agree with you, Martin. I think that, um, you know, this is a really great suspenseful scene in the middle of the film where it's, it's kind of, it needs to progress where, you know, where kind of Electric King and Renard's plans are going, really. So it's, it's this is quite an important scene for the whole film. And I think it sets itself up really well. You know, we get these really great sweeping sequences of the oil pipeline running through the countryside and obviously the helicopter flying in. And, you know, it's again, it's very, very reminiscent of, um, of you know, things like Honor Majesty's Secret Service and, and kind of the older um, Connery films in that sense. There's kind of really two scenes in this because it's obviously there's the scene within the pipeline itself where... Christmas Jones and Bond are both trying to defuse the bomb. And then you've also got the control centre where we've got this sort of very ropey computer setup where it's, it looks like it's sort of on an Amstrad computer rather than anything that's really modern. Um, you know, kind of it really is showing its age by this point. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really great sort of mix of worlds, really. You know, it's kind of Bond is, is in the thick of the action, whereas M and Electric King are kind of watching from the sidelines. M and Electric King are kind of with the audience. They're not really sure where this is, go what's going to happen with this. And, and we aren't either. You know, there's there's no guarantee that, that Bond is going to get out of this. And it's, again, it's kind of, you're looking at where, where he's got an escape plan, which is, and it, that's where the suspense comes from, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think this is also quite a crucial scene in the context of the wider film as well, because this is kind of the action sequence, the climax of which forces the film to reveal its trump cards, I guess, its jokers, uh, i.e. that Electra is in fact the main villain and not Renard, and also the fact that from this point, M is going to be captured. And so in terms of the Bond series at this point, we're in completely uncharted new territory and we don't quite know what's going to happen with that character uh, it's interesting coming off the previous scene where bond has now met renard in afghanistan and he has now got to the point where he suspects electra is more deeply involved with him than you know had previously been thought but crucially he's unable to convince m as he had abandoned her in electra's villa after having slept with her and so M has that, as she was with Brosnan, very disproving of, of his womanising. Uh, and M sort of sides almost with Electra over him. And so it kind of forces Brosnan into this sort of big reckless act where he has to sort of fake his own death, you know, create wanton destruction. 
to sort of reveal the villainous's master plan. And you're right about that action sequence itself, kind of like the best bits of Tomorrow Never Die. It's kind of video game inspired. You know, we've got the use of that joystick to drive it. There's a countdown clock. So sort of time and speed and the claustrophobia of that pipeline are driving the action. Yeah, and I think it uh, it works oddly well, considering the the criticisms, of course, that uh, many people have of the the Christmas Jones character and, and Denise Richards. I think it still works okay, even though the the situation is fairly unbelievable. Um, I think the when they entered the cylindrical metal thing, and uh, and Bond is kind of holding it, holding the top of it. I think that's a really cool Bond moment. I think Brosnan probably captured the essence of Bond the best in Goldeneye um, but uh, for The World Is Not Enough I think there are, are still those moments even though the overall film doesn't quite the tone doesn't quite match in places uh, but I think the, the Bond character itself and Brosnan's portrayal um, I feel that works pretty well in this scene. He's, he's quite shouty as well in, in this sequence he's, you know he's sort of bellowing suggestions at uh, Christmas Jones and she's sort of bellowing back at him so it's sort of you get that sense of tension throughout and it's there are a few sort of moments which are a little bit unbelievable I mean Martin you mentioned the fact that it does look quite cool that he's got one arm up on the top of the sled and then as the other sled approaches he just puts his feet out and although they're both doing about 70 mile an hour if you did that for real you probably break both your legs trying to stop it with your feet and there's also that sequence where Bond and Denise Richards just kind of leap off the back of the sled when it's still doing about 80 mile an hour. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I can pretty much guarantee that jumping off something doing 80 miles an hour is going to at least break some bones. Yeah, I, I can forgive the sort of unreality of this scene because like the best of Tomorrow Never Dies, this is quite an imaginative new kind of Bond action scene. We haven't seen anything operate quite like this before in Bond. I'd go back to what we said about Denise Richards in our review of The World Is Not Enough, which is I don't think she's bad in this role. I think she's just miscast. I think just fundamentally, just she's not convincing as an actress in the role because it's not a role that she should ever have been playing. If you look at the script and how this scene works, it's actually trying to build up that character in quite an interesting way. Her expertise and her courage and resourcefulness and physical prowess of being able to do this diffusal job at 70 miles an hour in a pipeline is very much in the foreground. She is doing all the work. Bond's just kind of controlling, you know, the, uh, what are we calling it? I'm calling it a Mario Kart in a pipe myself. Um, and again, the sort of the dialogue between them, it is harkening back to the banter that we had in kind of The Spy Who Loved Me. It's two fellow professionals going head to head and trying to collaborate. And of course, that is also a film which involved at some stage the diffusal of a nuclear bomb, which we'll talk about a bit more later on. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Adam, because if you compare this to Halle Berry and the Jinx character in Die Another Day, it's certain, I mean, there are glimpses, perhaps, of what is to come at the end with the, the having my ass line. But uh, but we don't, the, all of the exchanges are not like that, are they? There is there's some good expositional stuff and some good banter between the, the two characters that doesn't cross that, that Jinx line. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, it's a great point to make. Um, I think I was going to mention uh, Judy Dench as well excellent in all of her Bond performances but this one particularly good I feel even when she's not talking I feel like the little look up that she gives when uh, Electra mentions that her father spoke compassionately when advising him on the, the best course of action during her kidnapping and then uh, Judy Dench just kind of looks up and thinks oh bugger she's got a grudge that I hadn't thought of before Sounds more like the Queen. No, but no, I, I agree, Martin. I, th I think that um, Sophie Marceau and Dame Judi Dench are kind of the standout performers in this scene. You know, it's it's a very, very clever way that that scene plays out and the way that the, ex the expectations of the audience are kind of twisted and turned on their head because 
we're not really expecting Electric King to be, because again, she's kind of, you know, she's meant to be the victim in this film. You know, she's meant to have survived a, a kidnapping and false imprisonment for so long. And yet she was the one that was kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. So it's very, very clever the way that, you know, the way that she kind of manipulates everyone around her to be able to get her end result. Yeah, it's quite chilling, isn't it? And, and incredibly callous the way she presents that pin to Judy Dench at the moment when she thinks her best agent's just been killed. Like it reveals her not just as the villain, but as an incredibly cruel psychopath beyond what we really expected. Uh, Michael Apted builds up to that as well brilliantly, doesn't he? In those scenes during the pipeline chase where the camera just keeps wandering off Dame Judy Dench and focuses on Electra prowling round in the background, watching everything, shooting that little look to her uh, to Gabor. So we're just clued in that it's going to happen here ahead of her. Uh, and it's great that this scene kind of pays off this fully developed end that we have. You know, you, you think about her in Goldeneye, where to her Bond was a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. Three films later, she's now finally admitting he is their best agent. You know, they fully got into that symbiosis. But then, of course, by the end of it, we get the fact that she is now completely shocked and horrified by the grief and the betrayal that's kind of been visited upon her. And the slap pays that off brilliantly. It's my favourite single punch in any Bond film, I think. I mean, she does a full run up to it, doesn't she? Yeah, you always get the feeling if she'd have done it for real, she'd have probably burst an eardrum hitting her that hard around the side of the face because she really does go for it. But no, it's it's kind of a great payoff for that scene as well, I think. Although I think a bit weird that she's saying 007 is the best agent. I think we all know 001 is the best agent, don't we, Phil? You know, I knew you'd bring it up. When I watched this back on YouTube, I thought, I know they're going to bring this up. Well, well, to go back to what you said, actually, Martin, and, and bring it back to Bond being the best agent, Brosnan is great in this scene. He has all the poise and the control and the authority of that character naturally having, even in this completely new and slightly crazy situation. He's unflappable, and he immediately seizes that opportunity in letting it go off uh, to unmask Electra and to actually, you know, move his investigation on a bit. But the downside to that is he is therefore sort of responsible for M getting kidnapped, isn't he? Because in sort of faking his death, it gives Electra the moment she needs to basically kidnap his boss. I mean, if she'd have just decided to shoot her, Bond's head would have been really on the line there, wouldn't it? Yeah, I was thinking that when Electra says that she hoped that Emma had been standing next to her father when the bomb went off initially. Now she's got a second chance to kill her. But I'm not actually going to kill you now. I'll just shoot the guys standing around you first and kidnap you. Yeah, why are you just keeping her captive? Why do you want her to go up in the nuclear meltdown as opposed to now when you've got a free hand to do it? I guess one final thing to mention might be Brosnan shouting. He doesn't quite go full Taffin, does he, when he's saying faster. And you'd have thought, comparing the two scenes of Taffin and The World Is Not Enough, you'd think that an exploding nuclear bomb would be a bit more important than getting Alison Doody out of that flat. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Faster! So it's on to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. Who joined us this time, Phil? So this time we were delighted to be joined by Nicholas Sushik, who was a great Bond fan. So he's actually based in Argentina and he spoke to us about his kind of interest in Goldeneye. He's written quite a few books about the film and obviously its wider impact on film fans and kind of social reactions to it. So without further ado, this is Nicholas's take on the Bond franchise and on Goldeneye. Goldeneye was uh, my first, uh, the first James Bond movie I watched. Back in 1995, I wasn't a Bond fan. I was a little kid. I was into Super Mario. I played in the, the NES game. And then I watched, I went to Toy Stories and saw Super Mario 64. 
Well, then I was into that game, but curiously, that led me to the Nintendo 64 and then GoldenEye that everybody played at school. Then I see a billboard in here in Buenos Aires. It was Pierce Brosnan with the Walter PPK as in the teaser poster, and they were announcing the the release of the film on TV. And well, I, I was captivated by, by that guy with the Walter PPK and the tax. I mean, it was an unusual action hero because, you know, they're all sweaty or in t-shirts. And well, this guy was well-dressed. And I asked my dad, uh, hey, who, who is this guy? I, I know there's a game. Uh, can you tell me who this is? Oh, it's, and he, he's like, he's James Bond. He's a British agent. And uh, I told him, well, I, I want to watch a movie. Then we, we all came together with my mom to, to watch it. Uh, my parents were divorced, but they came together anyway, so I could see GoldenEye with them, and I was fascinated. Uh, by the time The World Is Not Enough was released, I was the James Bond, an eight-year-old Bond fan. I remember that people at primary school, my, my schoolmates were like, uh, yeah, you like James Bond? Uh, I told them I like GoldenEye. No, ah, James Bond. They told me James Bond Jr. No, no, the elder, 007, you know, the, the one from GoldenEye. <laughs> they were all surprised because I, I was the only kid in the classroom who, who loved GoldenEye. It was kind of exclusive. In fact, uh, I had the, my dad bought me the Johnny Lighting Aston Martin DB5 with the GoldenEye packaging, you know, from the 90s. And while every kid, when we played with the cars, Everyone was with the, I don't know, the Batmobile or, or police cars, and I played with the DB5. Yeah, no, I, I do remember those those little action figurine ones yeah. you could get as well. No, they were, we, we, they were really cool, actually. And you, you sort of, obviously now you're, you're a published author, obviously looking back at the, the GoldenEye kind of legacy. Was it always kind of your dream to be able to write about Bond? Yes, of course. I mean... By reading one of my first gifts, I remember for Christmas 98 was The Essential Bond by Lee Pfeiffer and David Worrell. So when I saw the, the kind of knowledge these guys had, and then when I was reading in 007 magazine, everything that it was written by Graham Bry about the, the premieres and the, the history of Bond, I, I say, well, one day I hope to be this kind of guys. But, you know, back then... Writing books, the internet was very started emerging, so nobody had a computer at home or internet access, so it was kind of difficult for me to think one day I'd become a writer. But deep inside, I said, I hope I could write something about James Bond one day and review a movie or talk about and be read by, by many people. And well, I, I'm glad I, I've achieved it. I have the same book, actually, the uh, Lee Pfeiffer Dave Worrell book. It's, it's a fantastic yeah. one, that one. Uh, sort of on your blog, The GoldenEye Dossier, you talked a little bit about how GoldenEye resurrected the franchise. And obviously, it had been six years since the last Bond film. Times had really changed a lot since that previous one. Do you think with that GoldenEye, without that, do you think the franchise would have survived? Do you think the fact we still have Bond films now is kind of all down to GoldenEye, in a sense? Yeah, of course, I... I mean, I, without GoldenEye, I visualized a lot of Bond VHS being thrown on, the, on a discount bin. I think, well, GoldenEye is in fact a 90s movie, but it's also a, a Bond movie. And 
you kind of needed to appeal to a younger generation who who didn't grow up with the Connery films by trying to to bring the the old elements back, but also trying to, to compete with the action heroes of today. You know, uh, I think True Lies was one of the most uh, successful movies in the 90s and the Die Hard franchise. Uh, those were the movie, the action movies 90s kids used to watch and hoped for, and GoldenEye kind of uh, broke that. Eon went from the doubt of seeing if Bond would survive the 90s to going straight into the new millennium. You know, it's a complete reversal of fortune to, to use uh, what Pierce says in The World is Not Enough. The, the supporting cast in GoldenEye is, is fantastic, as well as uh, Bond himself. Um, what, what do you think makes that supporting cast so colourful? And, and if you had to choose a personal favourite kind of supporting character, who would that be and why? The most visually remarkable character and the one, the one that had a big influence in me and I think everyone of, of my age, any boys or teenagers, was Senya Onatov, of course. She, she's beautiful, she's attractive, she's kind of or everyone's fantasy. You know, GoldenEye, one of the things it has is that the I think the secondary characters or the supporting cast uh, is very memorable. You know, there are people who even, who even made uh, mods, you know, video game mods with using the Nintendo 64 engine with Oromov replacing Bond in the game. And I like Oromov very much. I think he's a soft version of, you know, those, those old leaders from the Fleming novels, you know, General G from, from Russia with Love. Not exactly him, but you see that kind of guy who, who sees himself as a political leader and deep inside wants to bring back the Soviet power. And he's uncomfortable, very much like Bond, to be overseen by a civilian. You know, Bond is uncomfortable to be watched by M, which is a civilian and accountant. And same happens to Oromo when Mishkin questions him about the, so what happened in Severnaya. And notice he acts like a trapped animal. Godfrey John said this, he said that Oromov is very much like a trapped animal between the new mafias and the Janus, the Janus group and the new, the new political forces in Russia. I think it's uh, perhaps the most colorful and would be my favorite supporting character along with uh, Dimitri Mixing. Both uh, Cheki Kyle and Godfrey Jones are, are superb actors and I think that no one else could have replaced them. And obviously this is Pierce Brosnan's first James Bond film and he was very much the Bond of our generation. Um, what for you made him so compelling in the role? What do you think he brought to it which made him so outstanding uh, kind of in his day and looking back on it now still? Well, I think he mixed uh, a little bit of what every previous actor had and then he brought that uh, kind of vulnerability he had. He was a more human Bond. I see him very convincing as a secret agent and I know many said that in GoldenEye he looks uh, too thin and he doesn't have, for example, the body of Daniel Craig, uh, but that's how I would really see a British secret agent trying to kill. He looks like a banker, like a businessman. He has the, the appearance of what Bond would look in, in the 90s, I think. They raised the pace. They make uh, they made the, the Brosnan films more more active, more dynamic. There are more shootouts. And well, then after the 2000s, after 9/11, Bond movies tried to avoid humor, and maybe because there's a misconception where a funny movie isn't taken seriously. But 
I think the the Brosnan movies have good humor and also they you can take them seriously. And do you sort of miss Brosnan's acting style now that obviously we've moved into the Craig era? Do you think that we should go back to a, an era where it was kind of a mix of action and the the sort of more wise quips and things like that? Yes, I would like to to see that again. I I like Casino Royale and Spectre. Uh, Casino Royale is a fantastic movie, has a great script, I think, and well, it's based on the novel. And then Spectre, I feel it had a happy ending. Uh, you know, when I I read the the script that came out uh, the, the original drafts, uh, and well, I noticed that there were quite a lot of good elements that were left apart, maybe because of the leak. They they were desperate desperate to change uh, the ending and a little few things. But uh, I think deep inside, Spectre is not a bad movie, and it's pre- perhaps the most traditional Bond movie of the of the Craig era. Yeah, I'd agree. I think Spectre was was very yeah. much them trying to marry back the sort of more radical direction they yeah. take in the character with the epic, spectacular sort of action of, of classic Bond. Um, it's unsurprising you like Casino Royale because, of course, Martin Campbell directed both that and Goldeneye. Yeah. What do you, for you is the importance of his direction, just in terms of visual style or the feel of it? What what did he bring to his Bond films, which you would say no one else really has managed to? Well, I think Martin Gamble uh, had the idea of making a storyboard of the film's major action scenes. So there was a, a graphic template of what everybody had to do. And I think that tidiness then led to take more care about the, how the film moves. For example, the, you take the, the sets. It's not just a matter of making uh, a set brilliant and good looking. It's also how, how the camera captures it. You know, for example, in the Martin Gamble movies, Bond and Beyond, you notice that he often the the sets and, the, you know, an office, for example, he makes it looks bigger than what it actually is. I think he made, made Beyond take after and, and look after uh, everything that, that has to do with the with the aesthetic aspect of, of a movie. We don't have anymore that kind of simplistic shooting style of the jungle movies or that came after, which were very good. But I feel they were they weren't quite cinematic as uh, all the movies that came after Golden Eye. Uh, I was going to ask Nicholas as well. One of the more divisive areas of the oh. uh, the Golden Eye film is, um, of course, Eric Serra's soundtrack. Are you a defender of uh, Eric Serra's style, or was it a bit of a something that you you weren't a fan of at the time, or you've grown to like it more as you obviously as you've loved the film for so long? I agree that it's the le- least traditional score of the series, perhaps the only non-traditional element of Golden Eye. I mean, if a friend comes here and tells me, give me a CD with Bond music that I want to hear, I perhaps give him On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Thunderbolt, Goldfinger, but not Golden Eye. And I explain to him that this is not the kind of Bond music, the best example of what Bond music is. But I think it fits with the atmosphere and the mood of Golden Eye. For example, you have the, the Golden Eye Overture that I think it fits the, the ambience of a, of an illegal weapons facility in, in the middle of Russia. You feel that claustrophobic bond feels in, in the soundtrack. And then you have the, the romantic cues that I think are beautiful. You know, the Sermonaya Suite, we share the, the same passions. 
those uh, romantic tunes, I think they, they enhance, uh, you know, the story Natalia had, uh, that she's a survivor, that she has experienced uh, how all her, her friends were shot down. And well, in the casino scene, I remember, in fact, uh, Lee Favre says that in The Essential Bond, that he noticed the music here doesn't fit too romantic for a casino, but that kind of, you know, We Share the Same Passions, which is uh, track four in the official album. You know, I think it enhances that look of Monaco. I mean, if it was a casino in Las Vegas, for example, Bond is going, maybe that that kind of music wouldn't fit, but in the, the casino of Monte Carlo, I have researched when I wrote The World of Golden Eye, and it's a very expensive place. And if you are a Monaco resident, uh, you can go in. I mean, you you are you are not allowed to to bet or to play there. So I think what uh, Sarah tries to do there is to enhance that that kind of finesse and that high lifestyle Bond has. It's not just a a casino like you know the, the Mar del Plata casino that we have in here in Buenos Aires. And uh, you, you've talked a bit about how um, GoldenEye has influenced later Bond films. Do you think that GoldenEye has had an influence over wider action cinema in general, as well as just on the Bond series? Yes, well, I think after watching many movies, I think the biggest film influenced by, by GoldenEye was The Mask of Sorrow, which was also directed by Martin Campbell. You can feel that many script elements and many... Many characters are kind of influenced in a way, but uh, what it has been done in GoldenEye. There's even a, an unofficial gun barrel for Zorro. And I don't know if he did it intentionally to homage GoldenEye, but I think maybe he did it in a way because he was thankful to GoldenEye because I, I've been analyzing the you know, the box office grosses of all the Campbell movies. And he wasn't really that successful in terms of money and of making big, really big hits. And GoldenEye was the movie that made, that placed him as an action director. So I think he tried to homage in a way uh, that movie that meant so much in him. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it's, I think all, as all Bond fans, I think we really owe a great debt of gratitude to kind of Martin Campbell's direction for GoldenEye and for Casino Royale. I think one of the other areas that kind of defined GoldenEye was the fact that obviously things like the N64 video game were also off on the back of it. Were you kind of a fan of them bringing out a video game to be able to promote the film a bit more? Was that something that you thought was a good idea? Yes, of course. I mean, GoldenEye is a, a life-changing game. I'm not a big gamer, but for the Bond games I played, I know that GoldenEye has something that no other game has. You know, just as in 1997, GTA was coming up and that's a free world experience. Well, GoldenEye kind of had that uh, a little time before that you could go and explore a map and do whatever you can. And I mean, it forced you to think like Bond. GoldenEye also introduced me more than, than the film, the game introduced me to the old Bond characters. It introduced me to Joss, to Oddjob, to Baron Samedi. And well, as for the games in general, I think one of the one of the reasons Bond was uh, so so active in the 90s, it was that besides the films, we had these games, you know, the, the tie-ins, Tomorrow Dies, The World Is Not Enough, even if they were released one year or two years after the, the original Source movie. And well, they're, they're the original adventures, Agent Under Fire, Nightfire, Everything or Nothing, that made the, the wait for another Bond movie 
a little less tiresome and you felt that bond was everywhere. Even if you had to wait two or three years for the next one, you could go to a store and find the game or find the, along with the VHS, you find the game and the game also led to the movie and the movie led to the game when you wanted to compare both. So yes, I think they, I'm happy that Eon is betting on now we we have to see how Project 007 turns out, but I'm glad that they are thinking of making a, more bond, more bond games. Um, we've just celebrated a, a, the 25th anniversary of GoldenEye, and uh, I don't know if you saw, but recently there was a big Yahoo poll of you know everyone's favourite Bond film, and, and a lot of Bond scholars sort of put on a Majesty's Secret Service there. But when it was opened out to just the fans on the internet and the general public, GoldenEye was ranked for number one. For you, just as a summation, like why do you think it is that GoldenEye is still remembered so fondly? We touched upon its impact at the time, but as time has passed and it's still so popular, why do you think it's endured quite as well as it has? Well, like I said before, it sums up all the elements you hope to watch in the, in a Bond movie, except maybe the music. But people remember it fondly because it's attached to, to a childhood, I think. Everybody who is uh, between 20 and 30 now will surely remember at least someone playing the game or finding the, the movie on TV or even watch it in, on the big screen. So I think it's a very much a generational thing and also a, a modern classic. I think it's the, the Goldfinger of the, of the 90s. That's what people remember. Maybe most people will go for on Her Majesty's Secret Service because it was represents in the franchise. Uh, but maybe new fans are, and younger fans have Golden Eye as their reference for a modern Bond classic. I mean, you have the girls, you have the action, you have bonding attacks and wearing fine clothes. Uh, you have every, the main titles, the gun barrel. There's no big alteration to the formula and it's uh, like a new starting point for the series. You you can divide the whole series between Doctor No and License to Kill and then from between GoldenEye and No Time to Die. And as for Bond 26, I, I hope we have the we go back to the formula of Cabby and Harry with more humor, with more girls, more, I mean, a, a villain without a personal connection to Bond or to anyone else who has a, no, nothing personal against Bond or, or anyone else. So what are the kind of plans for yourself in the future? Obviously, um, you know, you've, you've written the two books about GoldenEye mm -hmm. so far and you've written a lot of the articles kind of about the history of the film and obviously its legacy. What are the plans going to be moving forward? Are you going to be looking at maybe doing a few more books? Yes, I'll be writing books as, as long as the Almighty wants it. But, well, so far I'm, at the moment, I'm translating for England, James, in, in Spanish. I know in Spain many people don't speak English, so I want, if they are putting their money, I want them to, to read my, my work in Spanish. I'm thinking of another book about GoldenEye that, but it's very green at the moment. I'm, I'm just elaborating a couple of ideas. And well, for sure, I will update A View Through a Thrill, which is my book about the Bond trailers. Whenever No Time to Die is out, once we watch the movie, I'll adapt the trailers that got out recently. And well, I'll review them in comparison with the, with the final film. Of course, that book will always be incomplete because... Uh, we never know how many actual trailers were for the Bond movies of the 60s, of the 70s. I probably missed some. I, I just had YouTube and the DVDs as a, as a reference to, to find and analyze the more trailers are good. But 
I'll try to see if I forgot about something and then expand what uh, what is already been been written. So that was Nicholas Sushik, Mr. Goldeneye. Uh, great to hear from Nicholas and incredible, really. We know that Bond is a, an international brand, but great to get the perspective of someone from a very different place, a different culture, also being influenced so heavily by the Bond films. And also, I mean, we've mentioned that uh, Brosnan's been getting a lot of love in our podcast recently. People generally tend to ignore him a bit, don't they, now that Daniel Craig, of course, has done such an excellent job. It's so nice that Nicholas is uh, is still spreading the word about how good Brosnan's era was, and particularly Goldeneye. Yeah, I mean, ever since Brosnan took over, it's been a thing where the next Bond actor sort of buries the ones that went before. I mean, Brosnan sort of, at the one hand, was sort of more serious and action-y than Roger Moore, but he had the lightness of touch that Dalton didn't, and so kind of consigned them to the past. Daniel Craig then had the sort of intensity and the psychological realism Brosnan lacked, and so has sort of put him in a coffin. But even now, sort of ahead of time, a lot of people have kind of gone off Daniel Craig. I don't know whether that's because of the endless delays to No Time to Die. I don't know whether it's because within the fan community, Spectre wasn't particularly liked, or whether everyone, because he's been in the role so long now, longer than any other Bond actor, everyone's just sort of waiting for that change. But yeah, we are now sort of seeing the era where whoever comes next is going to bury Daniel Craig, and probably that's going to see Brosnan's sort of star ascend, as it absolutely should do. Yeah, I think nostalgia has quite a lot to play with it as well. You know, a lot of people like to look back on the 90s and 80s and, and you know, and kind of reflect on the, the popular culture of the time, not just films, but also music and sport and television and so on. So I think that a lot of people look back on the Brosnan era with a lot of fondness. You know, this, he was kind of our bond to an extent. Yeah, you know, we kind of grew up with Brosnan in the role. And it, it was kind of a dream team, really, that they put together. You know, the fact they had Martin Campbell directing, the fact they had Brosnan and Bond, they had, you know, Sean Bean as Alex Trevelyan, and then they had, you know, Judy Dench as M, and they brought back Desmond Llewellyn and, and so on and so forth. So that, that recipe of the Bond films was all there. It just modernised it for a new audience. And it, again, it revitalised the franchise. So I, I think that it's, it's understandable why people hold it with such high regard. don't know what to say. <laughs> except that it was good while it lasted. So next up is the 007 Best segment, where we reveal our ranking of the seven best in any given Bond category. And this week, it's going to be our 007 Best finales slash final battles. The Bond films often build to a quite a thrilling climax, but which do we consider the best ones? Let's find out, starting with... Number seven. So in at number seven, we have License to Kill, the Sanchez base that we have at the end. Quite a, a brutal film we've mentioned many times and a very brutal ending for, for many of the characters, particularly for Sanchez. This one, I think, uh, deservingly just makes it onto the uh, the list just for how how different it is, I think, to the other Bond films. And of course, we also mentioned the uh, how difficult the filming was as well of that scene, some ghostly happenings, superstitious things happening, if you believe in those, for that final chase sequence. So yeah, I think this one is a really impressive end to uh, quite a different but also impressive film as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is a really great sequence. And, and you know, there are, it's interesting that they try to mix in a couple of moments of lightheartedness. You know, you get Professor Joe running away saying, bless your heart and things like that. But no, this is, this is very much more a very brutal and uncompromising finale, really. It's, Bond is kind of angry in, in this sequence, you know, is is very much focused on one objective, and that is to stop Sanchez. You know, this is where Bond is out for revenge. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you mentioned about the humour, because that does go hand in hand with this being the one moment of the film where it's a more spectacular, proper Bondian uh, sequence rather than a kind of ultra-violent, savage kind of scrap. Uh, but, but crucially, they don't let Dalton carry any of that. The one line that they do give him when Heller comes in on the forklift and he says, oh, it looks like he hit a dead end. He sort of rushes the line and then he runs off immediately, like he's sort of embarrassed and doesn't want anyone to know that he's just had a go at a one-liner. I also, just looking at this again, it does strike me that this is very much the Raiders of the Lost Ark of the Bond series. You you won't obviously know this, Phil, because you haven't seen any of them. But you know this great fan theory about Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the problem with it is, had Indiana Jones done absolutely nothing in the film, it would all have turned out exactly the same way. This is exactly the same thing. Had Bond done absolutely nothing to go after Sanchez, he'd have still been stopped. Because, of course, Pam Bouvier and Hella, they're all over it. They've made the deal. Hella's nicking off with the stingers at the end, and it's only because of Bond's meddling that Sanchez ever suspects and catches him. He, had he just booked his nose out, Felix Leiter's operation, as it was in the start, it would ultimately have worked. You should get your own segment, Adam. Adam's sensible Bond theories. That's, that sounds correct to me. Of course, we didn't get John Reese davis though. He was uh, a film too early. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, he, he does uh, exemplify that in uh, Raiders of the Lost Star, doesn't he? They're digging in the wrong place. I got the ruler of the sea. Phil, you need to watch these films, honestly. Number six. In at number six, we have the Monsoon Palace fights from Octopussy. So one of, again, one of the great sort of closing sequences. This was obviously where Roger Moore and uh, Desmond Llewellyn have to come in with the hot air balloon, of course. So there's loads of great one-liners and Roger Moore quips. Again, a really, really brilliant way to, to kind of bring that film to a close, I think. Yeah, I mean, some people say that this one is a bit underwhelming as a, a final battle, but I think that's testament to how good the rest of Octopussy is, how many scenes we've had, how much suspense has been built. And uh, yeah, I, I just love the uh, the ending as well with uh, with Q, a uh, lovely way to, uh, to reintroduce him to the film, having escaped the circular saws of VJ, of course, killed rather than Q. Exactly. This is the perfect Roger Moore action scene. It's action, it's humour, it's spectacle. You know, that, that opening gambit as they're flying in. You can operate this contraption, can't you, Q? It goes by hot air. Oh, then you can. And, you know, shooting off the little pineapple banister as he's sliding down it. And, and of course, yeah, the later perhaps line when Q saves everyone and, uh, and is rather affectionately coddled. It does beg the question, why did Q stay in India for so long? Because he's been here presumably the whole time while Bond's been back to Europe to do the whole train stuff around the circus. But Q's just kind of stayed here. Did he just have a load of annual leave? And also, clearly, he never got that sort of magic ascending rope uh, working, did he? Otherwise, this would have been perfect for scaling those walls. Yeah, it's interesting that they also have to rely on the kind of the circus team as well to be able to help try and rescue Octopussy in this sequence. You know, it's kind of this is one of those one of the rare occasions when Bond needs quite a big group of supporting cast kind of infiltrate the palace. And it's it's quite a, interesting the way that plays out. The fact that, you know, the circus team are quite self-sufficient in being able to scale the walls and, uh, and overpower the guards. And it's kind of Bond is there at the last minute almost. Number five. And in at number five, it's the Battle of Fort Knox at the end of Goldfinger. Uh, so a real classic sequence, this. It's the first mammoth battle we've seen in Bond. But of course, it's intercut with that mano a mano between Bond and Oddjob in the vault, which makes it work so well. 
the build-up to this is really amazing, isn't it? We have the epic aerial shots of the nerve gas being spread by uh, the flying circus. We've got the sort of really grinding mechanics of the breaking. It does take quite a long time for them to penetrate Fort Knox, which builds the tension even more. And of course, then you've got that great bait and switch moment of Felix Leiter actually being useful and all the troops not actually being dead and the Marines sort of waking up when you think that they've all been killed. So yeah, a brilliant sequence. This really does set the template as so much in Goldfinger does for everything that would follow it. Yeah, absolutely. I love the stunt work in this as well. You know, you get the sense that people were actually really jeopardising their own health. And so you may, there's that scene where Oddjob throws the other henchman off the side of the, the walkway and obviously he falls a really long way and you hear that bone breaking sort of slam as he hits the metal grid. There's great little moments in, in it. And there's, you know, there's things where Goldfinger, you know, he looks ridiculous in that American general suit, but yet the, the American soldiers still fall for it. He just ends up shooting about three soldiers. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. Excellent film, as we said, and uh, just a great finale. Uh, I mean, I guess it doesn't uh, it doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. Many of the things don't really make a lot of sense, like how effective is that gas? What exactly is it doing? As you mentioned, Phil, Goldfinger's ridiculous disguise that surely would not have worked. An odd job throwing that guy with the key onto the, the one place where Bond can actually reach the key and uh, defuse the bomb. But uh, yeah, apart from that, just an excellent scene. I think the fight with odd job actually especially is is one of my favourite moments where Bond has to kind of just outwit him, really, because the, the physical nature of Oddjob is uh, surely going to overpower him, so he had to find a different way. Yeah, you're right, and that Oddjob fight is a very clear build across the first three films, isn't it? In Doctor No, no one can really match Bond, and that's the point. In the second one, he has to take on Grant, who is absolutely an equal to him, possibly a superior. In this one, he's completely physically outmatched. You know, Oddjob gives him an absolute pummeling. The thing about the Goldfinger stuff in this is it's a great psycho-esque uh, reversal of the audience's sympathies because you do sort of want him to escape, I find, in a weird way. When he is sort of shooting poor Burt Kwok and then picking up a machine gun and mowing down the Americans as well, you are sort of weirdly rooting for him to get away with it because he's so devious and it's so ridiculous what he's doing. And he's got such a crazy bloodlust, which is not played as bloodlust. It's just this cornered animal surviving that you are kind of like, yeah, go on, Goldie, get out of there. So in at number four, we have Skyfall, that great battle with Raoul Silver. Uh, we mentioned it in our a recent on the scene segment. We don't need to go too much into detail into what happened. We've already we've kind of looked at what happened. Uh, but uh, essentially, it is it's got everything, hasn't it? It's got the action that you'd want. Uh, it's got Bond in his childhood home with the, the loving character of M, who sadly uh, passes away. Just the, the emotion of the scene, uh, all of the characters bring something to the party and um, what a party it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is brutal. You know, it pulls no punches. It doesn't sort of shy away from anything. It just literally, it just, it hits you really hard. And that's that's kind of when Bond is at its best. It's sort of when you're kind of really not expecting something to happen. And then it just kind of comes at you out of nowhere. But no, I think this is honestly one of the best scenes of the entire franchise. Craig's so compelling and not just emotionally, just in terms of the humour he injects as well. You know, the, the look on his face when his Aston gets blown up, that sort of parting glance of, I never like this place anyway. He's, he's still got that sense of humour, which, which really, you know, makes him three-dimensional and still very Bondian in this scene. And Deakin's photography, as ever in this film, is amazing. You can feel the fire on your face, can't you? You know, when the house goes up and Silver's just in shadow against it, you can almost feel the heat coming off the screen. And similarly, with the, just the pull of 
of gloom over the whole moors and in the chapel. It feels like you have this sort of blanket of darkness put over you. It's just stunning visually, this sequence, as well as, as you say, emotionally in terms of the action. The one thing I do wonder is obviously the value of the, the estate is now severely compromised by the fact that the house itself has blown up. So King Cade's going to have to make a lot of money back on this. So do you think he started running guided tours? Uh, this is the spot where I led Judy Dench across the moor. This used to be an Aston Martin. Presumably he'd give each guest a torch and he'd need one as well. I've lived here for 60 years, but we don't know the way exactly through this path. And then one by one, he takes each of them up the priest hole. Number three. Moving on to number three, and it's the Peace Gloria raid in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. The kind of the scene that gave us some of the most beautiful cinematography of the entire franchise. Of course, we get that astonishing moment where the helicopter gunships are flying in to rescue Tracy and Draco and Bond are flying in to, you know, to try and defeat Blofeld and to compromise his plans for world domination. It's such a, an arresting scene in terms of the visual identity and the way that it's shot. It's, it's just, it's beautiful and kind of, in a sense, it's almost haunting as well, you know, because, particularly because of what we'll see to come. Yeah, I mean, I guess similar to Skyfall in the sense that we're emotionally invested in all of the characters. Many of the Bond films just kind of end with with Bond defeating the villain, maybe alongside the uh, the leading lady. Uh, but particularly for Honor Majesty's The Leading Lady, we are so invested in her character. Later, it becomes even more dramatic. Uh, but this, the, the final battle itself, I think, uh, just beautiful scenery and um, plays out in quite a great way. Yeah, and of course, the fact that it's two men who think the world of her and who love her incredibly much, uh, who are coming after her. And the whole build-up, as you say, Phil, is sensational. Those choppers against the dawn sun, the music of John Barry. Draco sort of blagging it also is amazing, isn't he, when he's pretending to be the Red Cross. Uh, and then when we get into the fight itself, the fact that the bronze theme proper comes back, we've had the electronica version through the film, but the, the real one has been withheld, much like it is in Casino Royale. It's almost waiting for this moment for Lazenby to earn his stripes as Bond when he's finally able to go into battle with the full theme behind him. And of course, he celebrates with that amazing stomach glide with machine gun firing down the ice. It's also interesting the dynamic between Bond and Draco because obviously, you know, Bond is going to marry Trace in the fact that, you know, it's, it's kind of effectively it's his father-in-law that is, you know, is being supported by. So it's quite interesting how those two characters interact in this scene as well. Partic obviously, particularly when we get the less than progressive moment where Draco gives Tracy a, a bit of a slap to knock her out, which is not the greatest fathering technique in the world, but, you know, it, I suppose it's effective. I wonder what becomes of the St Bernard at the end of this as well. Do you think he's just adopted as the official MI6 dog? Goes to live with M or, or just becomes, you know, the dog of Q branch? Sharon, the tea lady, finds him a forever home. Do you, what's he even doing near Piz Gloria? Do you think it's actually Blofeld's dog? Yeah, I mean, the, the Persian cat was severely traumatised from the, the Connery films, so uh, maybe he just opted for a dog this time. Number two... And at number two, it's the volcano fight from You Only Live Twice. Uh, the finales really did build and build across the Connery era. Uh, you know, we've had Fort Knox in uh, Goldfinger. We have the underwater battle in Thunderball. And then we climax with this absolutely humongous, bonkers one uh, in the volcano lair. Uh, and yet there is still room for that great one-on-one -on -one face off with hands as well, ending in, uh, you know, crazy piranha death or piranhas, if you're going to say it properly. Uh, and, and of course, the fact that Connery has to blow up the, uh, the rocket against the clock 
love a little countdown that Connery has to beat at the end of these. But yeah, I mean, I mean this is humongous and, and massive in the best possible sense. Yeah, I mean, when I included this in our initial countdown, I actually suggested it should have been classed as mega volcano just because of the fact that the, the set piece is so huge and obviously the work that Sir Ken Adam had to put into you know kind of the whole set design and it just it feels like everybody else is dwarfed by this immense volcano that's kind of dominating the whole scene it's just so amazing how it looks and, and it does get a little bit ridiculous obviously when we have the ninjas kind of abseiling into the volcano lair and obviously that has gone into folklore with things like Austin Powers and um, Alan Partridge and things like that. As with many of these Bond finales, Phil, I guess the ridiculousness makes it amazing. It builds it to such an incredible degree. See, I think uh, I'd agree with everything you said. I think it's possibly a shame that Connery looks so uh, lackadaisical uh, and so bored with the production because it doesn't quite match. I feel like this might have made top spot if Connery's performance as Bond had matched the incredible scenes that we see, the fight sequences. Uh, so it's a shame that the Bond character is not completely at 100%, but notwithstanding that, I think it's an excellent uh, ending to the film. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's also the question of how exactly Blofeld escapes. I mean, how far does that monorail go? Does it just go all the way back to Tokyo? And he's in there for sort of a long three-day monorail ride with his cat. He's got like a little cooler by his feet with like some sandwiches in to keep him going along the way. I've just got visions of uh, like one of the ninjas waiting for the next monorail to come along, just sort of looking at his watch. But yeah, it's never really explained, is it, where Blofeld actually goes? You know, unless he unless he's got another vehicle at the uh, the end of that monorail link. Because it is a bit ridiculous, isn't it, that that final scene with the I guess the stock footage they've got in the background of an absolutely massive volcano that obliterates the whole scene. Like even if Blofeld had been going fast on that monorail, there's no way he's escaping that. There's just a final shot of Blofeld whizzing along on this monorail and a load of lava sort of coming behind him. I should have thought about this escape a little better than I did. Or he just goes full on Dr. Evil. Shit, 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 shit. Number one. And in at number one, the best finale of any Bond film, in our opinion, is, of course, The Spy Who Loved Me, the tanker battle at the end of that film. I think this one's got a bit of everything, hasn't it? We've mentioned many of the scenes in The Spy Who Loved Me have got the great combination of everything working in tandem. And uh, this one's got everything as well. The great battle sequences. We've got the uh, all of the countries working together. Interestingly, the British, the, uh, the Russian and American sailors all fighting together with Bond against the uh, the madness of Stromberg. A couple of my personal favourite highlights of this one are when we cut to the American sailor and it looks like the film is going to follow him. Then he just dies immediately and it cuts back to, to Bond and Shane Rimmer. Oh, well, he was he was going to be our hope, but now you better do it, Bond. And then, of course, we cut to the uh, the bomb and ticking as it, as it did in Goldfinger. But this one, even more suspenseful, I feel, with Bond on that rail at the top of the, uh, the ceiling and has to kind of get away from it as fast as possible. So, uh, yeah, I think a really great film and a fantastic ending. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the 007 set, which kind of had to be built to accommodate this whole submarine pen because it was just so enormous and so ambitious what they were trying to achieve with it. He's got to get the nuclear warhead out of the missile without it going off. And obviously, you know, you, you cut to Shane Rimmer and you cut between the two characters as they're, they're very slowly pulling the warhead out. And you also get the suspense, as you've mentioned, on the parapet where he's being sort of very slowly winched across and then it kind of stops. This is like you only live twice, but taken to, you know, taken to 110. It's much, much further in terms of ambition and in terms of the final result. It's just so astonishing what they actually achieve with this. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right about that combination of action and suspense. I mean, the gunfight feels vicious and dangerous, and the fact that it's purely gun battle and there's so many people involved, it almost crosses into a war film with all the explosions going on as well. It, it's, it feels very tonally different. And yeah, you're right, the giganticism is just perfect in this film. It dwarfs the previous two Rogers, which just always feel a bit too minimalist for Bond, and, and this kind of completely writes that. And Roger Moore's never looked cooler, has he? I mean, in that naval suit. And the fact that he's taking it all semi-seriously as well. I mean, he doesn't joke around nukes, does Roger Moore. Even in Octopussy, when he's doing it dressed as a clown, he's still taking it refreshingly seriously. And let us not forget, this also gives us a great fight sequence between Bond and George. When also when we're in Stromberg's lair, when Bond is trying to rescue Anya, and it's just, you know, this great finale where he's got to defeat Jaws before he can then defeat Stromberg so it's it's kind of two finales for the price of one almost you know there's these two great sequences yeah I mean we've lamented the exclusion of Agent Enya Amesova in this finale but uh, I guess there's not really much space with all of this action happening we do get her at the end as well that excellent ending with the uh, the jaunty nobody does it better <laughs> lovely way to uh, to end and release the, the tension of the scene yeah, and having an Eiffel cocked by M and uh, Freddie Gray. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British end up, sir. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sad for the rest. So let's head over to the James Bond Film Club. Last week, we reviewed the adventures of Nigel Small Fawcett, or Johnny English, if you really insist. But uh, what film are we going to take a look at this week, Adam? Thank you. So this week, we are going to take a look at The Man from Hong Kong. So who's interested in the post-Bond film career of George Lazenby? Yeah, thought not. Anyway, this one's from 1975, directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith, and it's one of three films uh, made for the Hong Kong martial arts producer Golden Harvest, which stars George Lazenby after his Bond performance and after he's been sort of blacklisted from pretty much everything in Hollywood. Uh, and this kind of straddles being a kung fu film and also an exploitation film. It all takes place in a very sort of hyperbolic uh, version of Australia's Sydney. So Jimmy Wang Yu stars uh, replacing the original uh, star Bruce Bruce Lee as Hong Kong Special Branch Inspector Fang Sing Leng, who's uh, both a police inspector, but he's also a kung fu master, and he's kind of a sort of semi-Bondian womanizer as well. Uh, and he travels in the film to Australia to extradite a low-level drug pusher, played incidentally by Jackie Chan's great mate and uh, kung fu legend uh, in his own right, Sammo Hung, uh, who was caught up in a drug deal at Ayers Rock. But he's then assassinated, and Fang Sing Leng stays to try and break this sort of big drug network. Uh, and he ends up in this big one-man battle against the man at the top, who is Jack Wilton, Sydney's debonair and very well-connected crime kingpin, played by a big-suited and even bigger mustachio, George Lazenby. So, you know, this is a pretty down-the-line kung fu film, really. Uh, the story lacks any real surprise or character development. It's just a series of kung fu fights which you have to say aren't staged or shot with any great invention or originality. Apart from some of them are extremely brutal in length. There's one in a Chinese restaurant, uh, starts in the kitchen and then goes into the restaurant proper, where Wang Yu takes an awful lot of punishment. He gets slashed across the back. He gets stabbed numerous times. And yet by the next scene, he's, he's, he's absolutely fine. He's not injured in any way. And he's just got another sharp suit on. Very, very strange. 
Uh, there's an interesting um, element of addressing the racism of this fish out of water Asian in Hong Kong. Uh, George Lazenby is incredibly sneering about uh, you know, him looking down on him and Asian culture in general. Uh, and there are two quite bold sexual encounters between uh, Jimmy Wong Yu and two Australian women, one of which is incredibly sweaty uh, because it's in Hong Kong and they're in a flat and clearly the temperature is about 100 degrees. Um, so, you know, there are interesting things of it. Lazenby's not in this very much, and it's not a great piece of acting, but it does go to show that he is this incredibly charismatic and imposing physical presence. And just like he sold the fight scenes in Bond, he really does sell the martial arts here. He's clearly learned them properly, and he looks like he can take people on. In fact, in the final fight sequence, he actually sustained a half burn on his hand, which he still carries to this day, and you can see it in the film. It's free on Amazon Prime to watch this at the moment. It's worth it, you know, for a Friday night watch after a few beers. Uh, and, and it's probably the best place to start in terms of a glimpse into the very sporadic sort of international B-movie career of George Lazenby, who on the basis of this is a much, and, and of course on A Majesty's Secret Service, he's a much better screen presence than he was ever given credit for. But the fact that he was quite badly behaved and quite arrogant obviously means he was reduced to very much low, lower rent, let's say, stuff like this. George Lazenby, the, the one who got away from the Bond franchise. I read somewhere that he'd uh, he'd actually moved to Hong Kong, I think, and was pretty much penniless at this stage. So I guess wasn't a very successful film, but he I guess he had to do it in that stage of his career as uh, after Bond. Not, uh, not a lot happening for him. Yeah, because of the manner of which he quit the Bond series and Harry Saltzman spread the word about him being difficult to work with, he couldn't really work anywhere else. And so he starts off going to Italy, actually. He's in a few sort of giallo murder mysteries. And this is then phase two of his continuing to try and work. He moves to Hong Kong. And as I say, it's one of three martial arts films he did with that company. And it's not a bad film. It's, it's just not a particularly memorable one, uh, just because it is largely just fight sequences and they're not amazing fight sequences. They're quite tough and brutal. It's a good display of martial arts, but just as film action sequences, they aren't particularly involving or engrossing or exciting, you'd have to say. So it's on to Phil's crazy theories for our next segment. Uh, if we were to draw an analogy, perhaps Phil's theories might be a bit like Skyfall Lodge, Adam and I playing the role of Raoul Silver, coming to shoot them right down. But uh, ultimately, Phil, you are the Bond character and you're going to implode the theory yourself. Uh, so let's. Uh, what have you got for us uh, this week? Well, it's funny you should mention Skyfall and Raoul Silver because this week's theory is called A Silver Lining. Now, in Skyfall, Silver was originally named Tiago Rodriguez, and he was actually an MI6 agent stationed in Hong Kong to infiltrate, um, you know, Chinese terror and cyber terrorism plots. Now, one of the other films that we've also in this episode as well, actually, that we've mentioned is, of course, Goldeneye. Now, in that film, the main villain is Alec Trevelyan. Again, he is somebody that has a history with MI6. He was a double agent himself. He faked his own death. He is now looking for revenge from a cyber terrorism point of view. Now, if you look back at the very start of Goldeneye, Trevelyan is killed, obviously, in the opening sequences. We then switch nine years later to what we assume is the present day. So we assume we're now in 1995 when Bond is chasing Xenia on a top in the Ferrari with his Aston. That correlates that it should have been 1986 that Trevelyan was killed. Now in Skyfall, M mentions that Silver was actually stationed in, on, in Hong Kong in the mid-1980s. I believe she mentions it was 85 or 86. 
So my theory this week revolves around the idea that did Silver and Trevelyan actually know each other or did they work together in MI6 on a particular mission and influence each other's plans to take revenge? Because let's be honest, both men want the same goal. Trevelyan wanted to compromise the British government by destroying their financial system and to cause cyber chaos. Silver basically wants to do the same thing, but in a much more advanced way. So, you know, we fast forward 17 years or so to when Skyfall is released and Silver wants revenge on M and MI6 for his betrayal. You know, they've both been betrayed for different reasons. So it stands to reason that both characters may have been based in Hong Kong at one time or another, or they may have worked together on a certain mission and been, you know, influenced by each other's hatred of, of the, the establishment that they worked for. So this week's theory is the idea that Silver and Trevelyan were actually far more involved than, they, than we ever actually thought before because of those timelines being similar. This is a bizarrely well-reasoned and, and journalistically researched um, theory from you this week, Bill. I buy that. I, I do wonder as well, because, of course, Janus is the name of the organisation that Trevelyan has set up in Goldeneye. And, of course, we think that that is a reference to his own two-facedness and the fact that, obviously, half his face is scarred. But it could just as easily mean that there are two of them, that there are two people at the top. So impossible when it was set up, it is because it was a joint venture between Silver and Trevelyan and that maybe at some point Silver sort of left. And taking that one step further, if we ignore for a bit the sort of reinvention of the Bond timeline with Daniel Craig coming in and take it that Judy Dench is a constant and so they do sort of weirdly follow on, is that because Silver leaves to join Spectre? Because we know from Spectre that he is part of the big octopus tentacle. And does that therefore mean that in this sort of weird timeline, Oberhausen, Christoph Waltz's version of Spectre is actually operating far, far earlier than we think it is, i.e. in the Brosnan era onwards. I mean, I hadn't actually factored in the Spectre link, but no, because I was kind of going down the idea that obviously, as we said, Janus as a terrorist organisation, they would have needed financing and they would have needed people behind the scenes to get them up and running. And maybe there is a link to the fact that, you know, Bond mentions in Goldeneye that it's the two-headed god, this idea that, you know, it's double-faced and we get that with the disfigurement of Trevelyan. But that could also link to the disfigurement of Silver that we see when he's being interrogated. So, yeah, I wonder whether there are links maybe then between the Janus crime syndicate and maybe between Spectre, you know, maybe they work together and it's all interlinked. Yeah, I think this is a surprisingly good theory, Phil. Not uh, not particularly crazy this week. Probably more likely is that the the Bond producers and writers are just reusing some plot and character points. I mean, that would be my counter theory. Uh, but yeah, I quite like it. I quite like that you've managed to connect these uh, these two villains from two different Bond eras. Very plausible. Yeah, I would say the same. I think yeah, if you ignore the origin storiness of Casino Royale and Quantum then yeah, I'm quite excited by this idea that Spectre are in operation from the era of Goldeneye and that therefore maybe they are somehow involved with Elliot Carver, with Electra King possibly, with Gustav Graves. That, that could be quite exciting. You know, let's look at that big Zoom call in Tomorrow Never Dies Again. Is Christoph Waltz on there? Or Stuntman Dave Cronley? And Phil is, is yet to sort of see it off in a corner. You never know. Maybe that's a deleted scene from Tomorrow Never Dies and we never got to see it. They should George Lucas him back into it just to sort of uh, give ground to this theory. It was all me, James. It's always been me, the author of all your pain. 
Okay, thanks a lot, Phil, for that theory. Do get in touch with the show, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole at gmail.com if you agree with that theory or you want to provide Phil with some uh, more interesting ideas for his uh, his future craziness. Uh, but we'll move on now to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. So this week we're going to delve deeply, or delve at least, into Greece. In the novels, Bond has a brief stopover in Athens on his way to Istanbul in From Russia With Love. And uh, in the, the first continuation novel after Fleming's death, uh, Colonel Sun, Bond also visits Athens and the, the Greek island of Rakanisi. Uh, but in terms of the Bond films, Greece, of course, features most prominently in Sir Roger's fifth outing as Bond, 1981's For Your Eyes Only. And uh, I'll focus on two areas that you might want to visit. So the island of Corfu being the first one where the old fortress can be seen at the start of the film when, if you remember, Gonzalez takes out Molina's parents in the helicopter. You can see the old fortress there. Uh, but it also reappears as part of the warehouse battle uh, that's supposed to be set in uh, Christatus's Albanian warehouse, but filmed on location in Greece as well. And probably more excitingly is that those scenes with Locke, uh, so by the pool, and also where St- Bond stands underneath the bridge and shoots Locke, sending his car onto the edge of the nearby cliff. Uh, so that one, the, the old fortress, uh, I'd recommend that one, only five euros to enter. And uh, apparently, based on the reviews I can see online, it is quite challenging to find, it's quite a large location. It's quite challenging to find all of those locations that appeared in the film. But certainly, uh, I'd be interested in going, taking a photo under that stone bridge. And uh, secondly, of course, it's St. Cyril's, who can forget, next the parrot, attack to St. Cyril's. Uh, but it's not that's not its real life name. It's the, the Holy Trinity Monastery in Meteora, constructed in the 15th century. It's in the, the northeast of the town of uh, Kalambaka. In Greek, it means suspended in the air. Obviously, that uh, makes sense given its location, very accurate description, uh, particularly if you've listened to our previous episode with Jim Dowdle talking about uh, Rick Sylvester's death-defying stunt on the side of that rock. Uh, Also, apparently, Roger Moore was quite scared of heights as well, so he resorted to uh, moderate drinking during the location shoot. And you can actually get up there by foot. It's uh, quite a short hike, actually, a 1.2 kilometer hike, 250 steps all the way to the top. But it does close at 4 p.m., so uh, make sure you get there early. And uh, also, apparently, it's less touristy than all of the uh, the other Bond locations that you might visit. Uh, obviously, when they were filming the scene, the, uh, the monks were rather unhappy at uh, the violence of the film. So it seems that's also passed into uh, the modern day as well, the they're not so keen on the Bond links with the location, but we certainly are. So I certainly recommend visiting uh, the, the Holy Trinity Monastery in Meteora. Thanks for that, Martin. And it's a great finale as well in For Your Eyes Only, isn't it, that takes place at that monastery. We all actually voted for it uh, individually. It was one of the few things we all voted for, but none of us voted for it high enough in our own sort of top tens for it to make our list. Uh, but it is a great one. I think my favourite moment in it is when Kriegler goes out the window and his supposed girlfriend, Bibi Dahl, is so nonplussed, she just sort of puts uh, a hand to her mouth in mild shock. You know, despite the fact that her boyfriend's just gone out the window and plummeted many hundred feet to his death. Okay, so our next segment is the segment. What questions do we have this week, Phil? 
Yes, thanks, Martin. So we've got a couple of questions this week. So Ratman's on Twitter got in touch with us. Um, so he was mentioning that, obviously, as we've mentioned before as well, Steven Spielberg was quite a big and still is a big fan of the James Bond films and, and wanted to direct one in the early 80s. He wanted to ask us, though, what would our thoughts have been if Spielberg had ever been offered the chance to direct maybe a Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton film? Do you think that he would have been able to get the style of a Bond film? Do you think that it would have been a good decision to bring Spielberg in? Yeah, I think it would have, because, I mean, Spielberg is an auteur, but there's no great visual style to, in terms of he's not the most distinctive of, of looking films, his are. So I'm sure he would have blended with the style of the films. Um, so at around the time he wanted to direct one, they were sort of making first Moonraker and then For Your Eyes Only. And I think certainly Spielberg doing Moonraker would probably have been a perfect fit. Obviously, he's very adept at science fiction. Not entirely sure For Your Eyes Only would have suited him. I think that would, because it's such a stripped back, smaller scale bond, I don't think that would have quite justified bringing on the big blockbuster maestro to do it. But certainly Moonraker directed by Spielberg would have been a very interesting premise. Okay, thanks, Adam. And to finish it off this week, we've got a couple of questions, uh, kind of hypotheticals that were were mentioned on Twitter recently. So if you guys were stuck on either a desert island or a fantasy island with one James Bond character or member of the production team, who would you want to be marooned with and why? So just to give you an idea, if if it was me, of course, it would be either Jenny Flex or um, Tracy from Honor Majesties or, of course, Eva Green from Casino Royale because... I'm I'm shallow, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because what? Because that is a particularly grotty answer there. <laughs> I'm just lowering the tone so you can both raise it again. Well, I mean, if I stay on your tone, Phil, I'd go Jane Seymour. But levelling the tone up, I, I got to go Sir Roger Moore, haven't I, for his uh, VJ told us about his excellent anecdotes that could keep you occupied on, on a desert island. Well, surely you'd want Hervé Villachez because he's very used to being on his own on an island with like very few other people and he can cook you nice meals all the time and import rent-a-ghost gangsters over from Las Vegas to, to give you a nice bit of exercise every now and then. Actually, maybe the person to go with would be um, Kissy Suzuki from You Only Live Twice because she's from a fishing village and can probably help fashion a boat to get you both off the place. And just to finish off this week, so again, another sort of hypothetical question. So in our Delve Deeper section, obviously, Martin, you've mentioned many of the glamorous locations that Bond has visited over the years. But are there any new locations, you know, any areas of the world that Bond hasn't explored yet, or maybe even areas out of this world that Bond hasn't explored yet, that as fans you'd like him to visit? For me, I actually thought that he should go to Australia just to give George Lazenby an opportunity to have a uh, an unlikely cameo in, in a future film. What do you mean when you say locations out of this world? Are you thinking James Bond on Mars? Potentially, yeah. I mean, we've had him in space and he's gone to the moon. So what's to say he can't go to, uh, to Mars or, you know, or Venus or Neptune in the future? What villain is he defeating in those places? <laughs> James Bond versus the aliens. Or if he's on Mars versus Schwarzenegger in Total Recall. You, you're not you, you're me. Can I just say, I actually plumped for Australia for my answer. So, you know, I, I did keep it in you know, on Earth. Could, could he go to South Africa for one? And then his car gets nicked every five minutes. I mean, I'm not sure how politically correct that would be, but, you know, you could do if you wanted to. Well, he'd bump into Mr. Cruel, wouldn't he, from Die Another Day? We've not been there. <laughs> has, has James Bond ever been to um, Canada? Canada would be good. He can have a sort of fight on moose back. 
So that's our Q branch for this week. So of course, keep sending your questions, suggestions and theories into our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or of course, you can email us rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. And so we move to the final segment of the episode, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So I'm the quiz master this week, and in the race for the inaugural Cubby Cup, Adam is currently in the lead, so it's a chance for Phil to peg him back. So this week, very simple, standard Bond quiz, which uh, actually I've stolen most of these questions from uh, a website called uh, The Spy Who Thrills Us. There's a Bond superfan who has a very good collection, a good database of easy, medium and hard Bond questions. Maybe we'll start with uh, you, Adam. So your first question here, what is the day job of the smuggler who's stung by Winton Kid's scorpion in Diamonds Are Forever? Uh, I think he's a dentist, isn't he? Because he has a look at um, uh, Mr. Kid's mouth while uh, the scorpions drop down him. That is correct. Well done, Adam. Over to you, Phil. The name of Bond's business card in Quantum of Solace reads R. Sterling. But in which other Bond film does he use this alias? Well, I'm not sure. Actually. Is it from Russia with Love? Unfortunately, no. It's the spy who loved me, Phil. So uh, Adam in the lead 1-0. We go into the second round. Question number two, Adam. How many Bond films did Robert Brown appear in? I think it's five. Four as M and one as Admiral Hargreaves. That is correct. Well done, Adam. Yeah, the spy who loved me through to License to Kill. So over to you, Phil. You're two nil down. Let's get on. Let's get one on the board. In which two Bond films does Bond suffer gunshot wounds? Well, one is Thunderball. And the other one is, oh, Craig. Oh, is it Skyfall? I thought you weren't going to get there, but you did, Phil. Well done, Skyfall and Thunderball. So it's 2-1. Adam can get the victory here with the final question. Live and Let Die, what was its original title going to be? My Enemy's Enemy, The Undertaker's Wind, or Baron Samadhi? don't know this but the undertaker's wind sounds weirdly familiar so i think i'm going to plump for that that is the correct answer adam well done three out of three i think you have an unassailable lead now for the cubby cup um so uh, congratulations we'll uh, we'll crown you at the end of the series but uh, that's it for this week's episode thanks everyone for joining us do take a look at our social media pages before our next episode uh, give us some likes and follows over on facebook instagram and twitter and of course you can send us any questions you'd like us to answer as well but uh, that's it for this week i was martin i was adam and i was phil hope you enjoyed the show Good night. I could always remember playing this level, actually, on the um, the Great World is Not Enough video game on the PlayStation 1 that I had. Yeah, your, your game was nowhere near as good as the N64 game, though. It's no point grimacing, Phil. Even Calvin Dyson agrees that uh, the N64 game is better than the PS1. I, I'm, I'm outraged and deeply offended by your PS1 bashing. I had a PlayStation, and even I agree with Adam. <laughs> That's why I was around his house playing The uh, the World Is Not Enough.